Join me every month for the inspiration to find your finish line. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Find Your Finish Line. I'm your host, Mike Riley, and this podcast is not only about you being able to find your finish line at a race or an event, but also in life. I'll talk with successful people that have overcome all kinds of obstacles to get to where they are today, and hopefully their stories will inspire you. I've got one such story on the podcast today, which hopefully you'll truly enjoy. Before we get started with our guest, Pillar Performance, you've heard me talk about it before, triple magnesium powder. Pillar Performance is to be used before and after workouts, not during your sessions. It's great for muscle recovery, recovery from the workout, and sleep. I was introduced to this back at Ironman New Zealand in December, and they said, Mike, why don't you take it before you go to bed, and you're going to sleep better. Well, I didn't want to do it on the road, so when I got home, I tried it, my wife tried it, We've been converts ever since. We're sleeping better than ever with Pillar Performance Triple Magnesium Powder. And you can buy it at thefeed.com. I have a discount code of MIKE23, MIKE23, that you can use for a 15% discount. Try one jar, you'll be convinced. Pillar Performance. I'm so excited to have my guest on today. I've known him for quite some time. He's a renowned author, he's a keynote speaker, social media expert, and an expert on neurodiversity. Neurodiversity is something we're going to be talking about a lot today. Six-time author, he's got a new book out, The Boy with a Faster Brain. He discusses ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, which Peter Shankman does have ADHD. And Peter, welcome. <laughs> yeah, it's always hard to say, you have this. Peter, welcome to Find Your Finish Line. Uh, it's great to be here, Mike. It's always great to talk to you. Well, I, I always put my guest on the spot. You know, I, I, guess, it's, I guess it's like the uh, opening up period to relax. But I like putting people on the spot right away. My first question is, Peter, did you get a workout in today? I did. I went to the boxing gym and did two hours of hard training. I was... Only to do one, but my daughter, I sent her to sleepaway camp a few days ago. It was her first time at sleepaway camp. It was my first time sending her, and so I didn't realize exactly how hard I was going to take that. She's over there having a blast. I'm missing her terribly, so I did two hard hours this morning instead of just one to sort of just uh, get me through. Yeah. So, so how many days is she at the camp? She's there for three weeks, but if she likes it, she can extend it to six. So we're going to find that on, on uh, I think, by Tuesday whether or not she's going to extend it. But yeah, it's, uh, I went to sleepaway camp once in my life. I was 10 years old. I went for a month, cried every single day, hated it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if she's there for three weeks, Peter, you'll be in the best shape of your life. <laughs> There's no question about it. Every day, just go and work out. Well, that's the problem with ADHD is that, you know, I have, there are very few speeches in the summer. There usually aren't that many because, you know, everyone takes time off. So between not having speeches over the next month, not having my daughter here, you know, what the hell am I going to do? So when you're ADHD, <laughs> if you don't have a schedule, you're screwed. So it's like either either just be at the gym every single day or, you know, it's one of those things where you're going to start a new business or, 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 or do something. You go, you got to do something to keep yourself busy. Well, Peter, a lot of our guests, as you know, and gosh, myself included over the years, spend a lot of time on the road. How do you, how do you get your workouts in on the road? What do you do? So you can run anywhere. Um, <laughs> every hotel I've ever stayed at, no matter how bad the gym might be, has a gym right? They have something. It might be like a 20-year-old workout bike or, you know, just a couple of pairs of weights, but there's always something you can do. Um, I've, I've, I've been in gyms where I've done, or I've hotels where I've, I've done stair runs, right? Mm. It'll be a 20, 20 story hotel. And I'll just, I'll just run the stairs three or four times. You know, it's, there's, there's always a way to do it. And, and I find that, um, I had this, this sort of revelation about seven or eight years ago that it's not about not having the time. Um, it's about not having the desire, right? And I realized that because when you're ADHD, if you, if you, for me at least, the kind of ADHD I have, an exercise in the morning gives me the dopamine that my body doesn't make enough of because of my ADHD, right? So dopamine, serotonin, adrenaline, I get those chemicals from exercise. So for me, being able to get up super early, um, you know, I might fly to Tokyo on a Tuesday, uh, land Wednesday night. I have a keynote Thursday morning. So I'll 
go to sleep Wednesday night in Tokyo. I'll wake up super early and I'll get in a workout, whether it's an hour on a Peloton or whatever, because I'm better on stage that way. I'm a better human being. I'm a better person. I'm a better speaker. I'm better everything if I've exercised. And so I find that for me, it just comes down to what do you want more? You know, do you want, I, I, I'm never, look, I'm never going to exercise. I, I made peace with the fact that exercise is never going to, I'm never going to get thin strictly <laughs> through exercise, right? I like pizza too much. I like tacos too much. I'm never going to get super thin, but I'm in great shape um, physically. I my, my doctor loves my numbers, things like that. So I use exercise to feel better about myself, about I, I use it to feel better about how I act, about how I how I behave, about how I'm, what kind of a parent I am, what kind of a dad I am, right? I'm a single dad. So for me, I ask myself the simple question, okay, you're tired. You landed in Tokyo last night. You're tired. How are you going to be if you don't get that 45-minute hit of dopamine, right? Are you going to be as good? If, you, if I can honestly say, yeah, I'll be fine. I don't have any meetings today. I can just get some sleep. Fine. But if I know yeah. I'm going on stage, the audience paid to hear me as me. Right. So I get it. I drag my ass out of bed and I might bitch about it the whole time. I probably will. You know, um, there, are days, there are days when I have my daughter when I'm home that I know if I don't get on the bike at 4 a.m., uh, you know, or 430 a.m., she's going to wake up and I won't exercise. And I'll, I'll I've done 50 percent of a, a I'll be on a Peloton for an hour ride and I'll do 50 percent with my eyes closed. <laughs> right? I'm not even not even awake yet, but I'm pedaling. Right? I'm getting it done. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting when people, I would do training with other friends that were doing training for a triathlon or an Ironman. And they'd say, Riley, what are you, what are you training for? I go, I'm training for life. life. Which I, I finally decided if I'm not going to race a lot, which I'm not racing much anymore, it becomes I'm doing it for me, doing it for life. And that, I think, should be the number one reason for most everybody. Peter, Attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, it's almost like I believe reading everything about you, following you, knowing who you are, it's like you'd like to redo that into attention deficit, hyperactivity, normal order. Yeah. Because it, it, that, that faster brain we talked about, but in the times of you growing up, of me growing up, and even 20 years ago, undiagnosed ADHD what tell us your story of when you were diagnosed and when people figured it out because they just thought you were a bad behavior kid yeah. didn't they so growing up in the 70s and 80s in the new york city public school system adhd didn't exist what existed was sit down you're disrupting the class disease and i had a very very bad case of that from as early as i can remember um you know i had i was constantly getting sent to the principal's office constantly getting in trouble and the thing was i was getting in trouble for doing stupid stuff not for doing stuff that, you know, I was never getting in trouble for, I never beat anyone up, right? I never stole anything. I never did anything. I never broke the law. Um, I got in trouble for making jokes. I got in trouble for, for, for giving answers that I knew would make the class laugh because um, they were funny as opposed to the right answer when I was called on. And over time, what I realized, I mean, it took me years, years, years to realize this because, again, I didn't get diagnosed in my mid-30s and I'm 50 now. Wow. Um, I just thought I was a bad kid. And what I realized years later was that when I am in a room full of people and I make them laugh, that's a dopamine hit. And dopamine actually allows you to sit down and focus. So the irony of this is I was getting in trouble because I was actually trying to sit down and focus. The subject I was great at, the subject I loved, English, um, social studies, world history, you couldn't tear me away from those. I never made a sound because I had enough chemistry in my brain just because I liked the subjects. It was the stuff I wasn't good at. That my brain was just trying, you know, ADHD doesn't mean you just like to look around a lot. It means you're looking around because you're trying to find something exciting to give you that hit so you can concentrate. And so it was brutal. It was brutal growing up. I'd constantly get in trouble. I got out of high school. The only reason I made it out of high school is because I, I got accepted to High School of Performing Arts, the, the, the school mm. the, the TV show Fame or the movie Fame was based on. Um, I get into that school because I had a good voice, right? I could sing. And so I got into the school and I was, I was a vocal major and I sang. And then uh, I got into college a similar way. I, I went to Boston University and BU had this program for kids who were kind of screw-ups in high school, but they saw something in them, right? And so I got into BU and if you, if you did this two-year core curriculum and got through it, you were automatically matriculated as a junior into your school of choice. So my, for me, that was communications. 
So I went into, for two years, to the hardest program of my life, um, got through it by the skin of my teeth, but when I got into the college communications, oh, you, I have to go out and report on what's happening at City Hall. Okay, done. And I would get straight A's because all of a sudden it was something I enjoyed doing. Um, and yeah, when I got out of school, I, had, I, had, I only had one real job in my life. It was with America Online. Remember AOL? Your younger, oh. <laughs> your younger audience, your younger listeners are not going to know what AOL was. But um, I, I was working. I helped launch the newsroom. If you, if you remember, welcome, you've got mail on today's news. We built that. And it was three years of the most incredible experience of my life because we got to do whatever we wanted to do. Um, we'd do it. If it worked, we'd do it again. If it didn't work, we didn't do it again. And we just learned on the spot because no one had ever done this before. And they let us work however we wanted to work, right? So if I wanted to come in at 6 in the morning and work till 2, I could. If I wanted to come in at 2 in the morning and work till 10, I could. They didn't care as long as it got done. So that sort of spoiled me because I left AOL and I come back to New York and I'm like, wow, any job I get, this, this is great. This, this is what work is like. And the next job I get is, is at a magazine where we have 8 a.m. meetings and 8.30 a.m. meetings and 9 a.m. editorial control morning meetings and 10 a.m. check-ins. I'm like, oh, my God, this is Russia. And I lasted two weeks before I quit. <laughs> and that was – so I went on my own in October of 98. I told my parents that I was going to start a public relations firm. Never mind. I had no idea how to start a public relations firm <laughs> or how to do public relations. And I told my parents – I remember this so clearly. I was in their house in Staten Island, New York, and I said to them, I said, I'm going to go start a PR firm. When it fails, not if it fails, when it fails, I'll get a job. It will be, Mike, it'll be 25 years this October, and wow. I haven't had to get a job. I've started and sold three companies. Um, as you said, I'm a corporate keynote speaker. I, I started a company called Help a Reporter Out, which fundamentally changed how journalists and sources around the world find each other. That was acquired by, by Cision slash PR Newswire. Um, so, I, you know, when I finally discovered that my ADHD could actually be a gift if I stopped fighting it and rather leaned into it, that was sort of the game changer for me. And that's how everything I'd ever did in my life is because of, not in spite of, any success I've ever had is because of, not in spite of my ADHD. The whole reason I started running, which led to marathons, which led to triathlons, which led to Ironman, was because I had an employee who worked for me at my first company, and she was a runner. And she said, come running one day. She came back from a run one day, and she was so excited and happy. I'm like, wow, you look really high right now. She's like, oh, I had this great run. You should try it. And I'm like, that sounds fun. I, I think I survived a half a mile before I puked. Of course. Because I'd never run before. I ran, Mike, I ran to the store for cigarettes. That was about all I ever ran, okay? That was me growing up in New York. I never ran. I ran by pressing X on a joystick. And so, but I did this half mile. And after I threw up, I'm like, wow, I feel really good. And I did it again. The next day, and I did it again the day after that, and by, and my first marathon was Chicago of 2001. Um, I remember I did my first 5K, and I'm like, wow, that was awesome. And most people, most normal-brained people, would do a 5K, and they'd be like, great, that was fun. I'm going to check that off my list and go have a beer. I signed up on the spot for a marathon training program and a marathon, and that is literally the perfect example of ADHD, right there. So, so it diagnoses today. Obviously, is much better than it was when you were growing up or I was growing up. But is it? Do they? Uh, are they able to turn that negative into a positive because they now can identify that young person or even that you know teenager? Uh, they're able to identify it. Is that happening today, or is it just maybe only ten, twenty percent? I mean, I know you're doing everything you can do so that parents become aware that their child is better than normal, so to speak. Is that happening? It's starting to. It is a slow process. Um, I, that's literally my last book. I wrote a children's book. I've never written a children's book before, and it's called The Boy with the Faster Brain. Yes, it and is. There you go. There, yep. there it is right there. The Boy with the Faster Brain is about a 10-year-old kid named Peter who, in today's world, it's, it's autobiographical, except that in today's world, he gets diagnosed when he's 10, and he learns about cognitive behavioral therapy and he learns about breathing exercises and he learns about being able to stand up in class and go to the back of the room and just do some squats or whatever to get that chemistry going. Um, schools are starting to understand that not every brain is the same. You know, the, the issue that's crazy is if you look back, why do we sit 
in schools, why are chairs placed in rows, right? One, two, three, four, first row, second row, third. The reason would surprise you, the reason is because in the 1700s, in one-room schoolhouses, rows were the most effective way to get as many people, as many students, into that one room as possible. There's obviously other ways to do that today, but it's that concept of, oh, well, it's the way we've always done it. Well, the way we've always done it doesn't work forever, right? A thousand years ago, 1,250 years ago, all we knew was killing big animals so we could eat. That was it. The reason that our pupils dilate when we get nervous, the reason that the blood flows into our legs at a higher rate when we get nervous is because millions of years of evolution have taught us that when we see a saber-toothed tiger, we need either have to kill it and we'll eat, or it's going to kill us and it'll eat. There was no middle ground there. Then 1,250 years ago, we discovered what? Farming. Right? All of a sudden, we didn't have to run around and catch our food, and we didn't need that sort of dopamine hit that we'd get when we did. But 1,250 years in the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of humans being alive on this, in this planet, is a fraction of a second. So our brains haven't adjusted to that yet. And so there are some kids, they say one of every eight people in the world is neurodiverse, some kids who still think a little differently and who still need that excitement, that exercise, that dopamine hit to be able to focus on what we do today, which is kind of normal and, for lack of a better word, to some of us, boring. And I think that it doesn't help the fact that we live in a fast food convenience culture, right? I mean, I grew up, I remember every morning I grew up, my parents thought they were giving me healthy, healthy cereal. The rule was I could buy any cereal I wanted as long as sugar was not in the first three ingredients, mm-hmm. right? And so that left me with, you know, that left me with Honey Nut Cheerios. It was in the fourth ingredient. Great. Still pure sugar, right? And so instead of giving me two bowls of chocolate frosted sugar bombs every day and then sending me off to school in a car, maybe what we do today is we give kids some eggs, some protein, and then they walk to school or they exercise a little bit before school. So we're starting to discover, and, and again, these things take time. There was a study out of the University of Texas where the university took over a school district for a semester. They increased recess from 20 minutes a day to 90 minutes a day, and they changed the breakfast and lunch for the students at the school from I think it was something like 70% or 60% carbs, 30% protein, 10% fat. They changed, they flipped it on its, on its head. So it became like a lot, of, lot more protein, a lot more fat, very few carbs. And they saw a 19, I think it was a 19% decrease in boys acting out in class and a 14% increase in girls getting involved in the conversation in class. Girls and boys prevent, pre- present ADHD symptoms radically differently. Boys act out, girls get quiet and withdrawn. So here you have something as simple as more, more exercise, more recess, and better food quality, and you started to see massive results in under six months. So stuff is starting to happen. You know, for this ADHD boy, it's not happening anywhere near as fast as it should be, but it's starting yeah. to happen, and I take this with. And the nice thing also is companies are starting to invest money in mental health services. And so not only for their employees, but for, the, for their employees who are parents, right? So the parents are learning as well. I was just invited to speak last month at Morgan Stanley to talk to all 80,000 of their employees about neurodiversity, both in the workplace and for parents in the schools. So it's starting. Fingers crossed it continues to grow. Well, yeah, during the, obviously the pandemic exasperated it. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a study done here at the Rady Children's Hospital that pre-pandemic to post, it went up like 30%. I don't know if that's diagnosis. It's just that the ADHD became increasingly worse for the children because of the pandemic. Are we coming back from that? Are the kids coming back from that? A lot of it was that parents started to pay more attention to their kids' mental health for the first time because they're sitting there going, wow, this kid hasn't seen another kid except Mm. for on Zoom in the past nine months. That's probably not healthy. So when appointments started happening and telemedicine started happening, which made it a lot easier for parents to bring their kids in without any fear of shame or hypocrisy, they started saying, hey, yeah, your, your child does have a neurodiverse brain and that's okay. And then, of course, They'd list the symptoms to the parents. They'd say, you know, your kid is hyperactive and he doesn't focus. And the parents would be like, well, crap, that sounds like me. 
And apparently, <laughs> apparently get diagnosed. The fastest growing segment of society getting diagnosed in the United States right now with ADHD are parents. Wow. So, so what, does that, be, is that a, if the no, parent No, it's because has, all of a sudden they have a chance to do, all of a sudden they, they say, wow, that sounds like me. Maybe I should look at this. And the, the, the doctor's like, yeah, you have the exact same symptoms. But again, people like us, my age, growing up, it was sit down, you're bothering the class. <laughs> The world we live in today, it really uh, is little different, little different than it was 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> Are there different levels or degrees of ADHD or ADD because of, you know, we're, we're going through tough, it's a, it's just a tough world to live in. Yeah. I mean, everything is on, everything is a spectrum, you know, everything has a, has a, has a, a I, I, and again, I think that the, the better story is the fact that we're finally starting to realize this is not a curse. Right. We're starting to understand that we we have these different brains and different doesn't automatically mean bad. And that's a huge discussion to have because, you know, again, when I, I was my problem growing up was that I was always too smart to get specialized help. So in the New York City public schools in the 70s and 80s, you had to be failing math and failing reading to get what was called resource room, which was extra time on your tests, extra materials, things like that. I was failing math, but my reading was on a college level from second grade. So I never qualified for any extra help, right? Wow. Now we're starting to understand that, yeah, you could be great at one thing and bad at another thing. And this just means you need help at one thing and not everything. And so we're starting to understand that. And we're starting to, to do a little more because there are levels and there are spectrums of, of, you know, whether I am, I've never been tested for this to be honest, but it would not surprise me at all if I was highly functioning autistic. Because I see a lot of similarities in my friends who are with me. Um, you know, the funny thing is, a perfect example of this, I am a, you mentioned at the beginning, I'm a corporate keynote speaker. I speak to groups as large as 80,000 people at a time, and I am the happiest person in the world. I'm in my happy place when I'm on that stage talking to all these people. Or even when I'm having this conversation with you, this is, I do, seamlessly, this is so easy for me. Is it therapy? It's not even that it's therapy. It's that I like sharing my knowledge. And this is a situation where I get to share my knowledge. Same thing with being on stage. Now, flip that. Last August, I turned 50 years old, and my mother called my assistant and my best friend without my knowing and said to both of them, I'd like to throw Peter a surprise birthday party. And both my assistant and my best friend said to my mother, that is possibly the worst idea you could ever have. Because... As much as I love to be on stage, that's where I'm happy. Put me in a room with 15, 20 people where I have to make small talk and I have to see that they're all having a good time and I have to be, ha ha, this is lovely. I will be in the second bedroom in the back playing with the cat every single time because for what I love to do is entirely different. When I'm on stage, I'm getting that adrenaline, that dopamine, that endorphins. To the point where my assistant actually schedules my flight home, my flight's home after my speeches. She tries to make them within three hours of the speech because she knows that within three hours, I'm going to crash hard. When you're neurodiverse, you have a social battery that's not as big as neurotypical people. So while someone like you could possibly go um, to three parties after the Iron Man or three parties after a day, you know, and smile and make small talk or whatever and just be on the entire time. My social battery goes a lot, burns out a lot faster. And so for me, that doesn't mean that I don't want to do it. It just means that I need to recharge. My mom and I talked about this. She used to, she'd organize a Thanksgiving dinner or a Passover dinner or whatever, Rosh Hashanah dinner. And halfway through the meal, she'd always find me in, the, in my own bedroom with the door closed reading an Archie comic. And she used to get so angry at me. Why aren't you you're so disrespectful? I didn't know at the time either. I was recharging. I had been smiling and cheerful and, and now I need to be over there. And that's a lot of what ADHD is, is that we're so good at certain things, but other things we're either terrible at or we just need to do them in a certain way. And all, all forms of neurodiversity are like that. You know, the thought just came to my head about, let's say, I pick an age, an 11-year-old boy or girl gets diagnosed with ADHD and the parents are told and everything. But if the parents don't educate themselves that, that young person might not get better. Is that true? I mean, they've got to educate themselves. Mike, you're 100% right. And I'll take it a step further. 
I spent the first 18 years of my life being told, not by my parents, but by teachers, being told that I was broken. And I've spent the next 32 years of my life in therapy to try and prove that I wasn't. <laughs> if I can do one thing with this kid's book, with talking on your podcast, with going on TV, if I can help a five-year-old understand that he's gifted, right? And instead of him having to spend 30 years in therapy to prove to himself that he's not broken, I wake up every – I'm 50 years old. I've sold three companies. I'm somewhat successful. I'm not – you know, I'm not Bill Gates, but I've, I've done okay, right? I have a nice apartment. I have a kid. But I wake up every single morning, every, sing, every single morning, and I'm sure that today is the day that the New York Times is going to do a front-page story about how completely full of shit I am, right? And how every bit of success I've had was nothing but a fluke. And when they don't, it's obviously because I'm not smart enough or important enough to be on the front page of the New York Times. I go through this every morning like a drug. Now, do I really think that the New York Times is going to write a piece of being telling you? Of course not. But when you're told for so many of your formative years that you're different and that's wrong and just go sit in the corner and don't interrupt the class and try not to say anything, it sinks in. And so what you, what you say is that faster than normal brain starts out with negativity. It used to, and it still does to an extent because we live in a society where unfortunately the majority of people think if you're different, that's wrong, <laughs> right? And I hate that. I hate that. I hate everything about that. So growing up, imagine growing up in New York City public schools in Staten Island, New York of all things, I was different and that was wrong. And I was bullied and I was beaten up and, you know, teachers didn't love it either. And it wasn't until I got out of my own and started doing my own thing that I realized, wow, the choices I make here are actually beneficial when you don't have to play by the rules that are forced on you as a kid. Now, I'm not saying rules aren't important. Um, you know, we learn. We, we need to be socialized. We can't just be running around crazy doing whatever the hell we want all the time. But there's a difference between being socialized and then following rules simply because they exist for no other reason than because we have to follow. And a lot of schools are very much like that. A lot of schools are sit down, speak when spoken to, whatever, as opposed right. to Let's have a conversation. Let's talk. Let's figure out what ways. And I don't blame the teachers. They're, 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 they're doing more with less. They have 35 kids per class. They have to do this whole thing. It's not their fault. This has to be a much bigger conversation starting at the top levels. Peter, I've got a question for you. You wrote, you know, six books, Faster Than Normal, which I've read, which is excellent. But then your latest, The Boy with a Faster Brain, the children's book. Why'd that book come later than the other ones? Why did you... Do you wish now maybe that should have been your first book? I'm not I, putting you no, on the spot. I just, you know. No, I mean, when I wrote my first and second book, I hadn't even been diagnosed yet. Oh, wow. Right? So it, I didn't get diagnosed until probably somewhere around my third or fourth book. And in 2016, I got divorced. And that's when I started writing faster than normal because I finally realized all the things I was doing. I mean, look, I wasn't, I wasn't the only one at fault in my divorce. I mean, we both, we, we're still good friends. We just didn't work, right? And so, so... I started realizing all the things that I did and she did and whatever, and we just pushed each other's buttons. And, you know, you don't realize that when you're ADHD, something as simple as realizing or fe feeling that someone's not listening to you when you're having an argument is going to trigger everything in your brain. Because the second you don't feel like you're being listened to, you need to speak more and more and more. And mm -hmm. then you wind up yelling and no one's going to win. Right. So and that happened a lot. So it wasn't until after I got divorced, that I realized, OK, look, what can I do to help people understand this part? And so. That's where Fast and Normal came from, and the, the publisher labeled it as a productivity book, which it is, but it's also really about, for the first time, understanding that ADHD might not be a gift, might not be a curse. It could actually be a gift. And of course, classic ADHD, everyone said the second it came out, wow, this book's so great, you should write a kid's book. So many kids need to hear the story. I'm like, oh, you're right, I totally should. And I immediately forgot about it for five years, because that's yeah. what you do. That's what you do. And then when my girlfriend said to me, you know what? You've been sitting in this long enough. You need to write this children's book. When we go to, I don't remember where we're going, Rome or Africa or somewhere earlier this year, when we go there, you sit down on the plane and you start, at least come up with an outline. And we were two hours into a 10-hour flight and I turned to her, I said, um, I said, I'm going to the bathroom. She goes, how's the outline? I'm like, oh, I, I finished the book. <laughs> <laughs> and she just looked at me, shook her head. She goes, couldn't have done that five years ago. I'm like, no, I couldn't have. It didn't work then, you know? And that's that's what ADHD is. ADHD is this, is this, you know, I, I, I joke. A lot of people call it all or nothing. I, I say that I have I only have two speeds. I have namaste and I'll <laughs> cut a bitch. And there's no 
There's no middle ground there whatsoever. But again, that's, you know, think about it. There are more people like me doing Iron Man than there are people not like me doing Iron Man. Okay, Iron Man triathlon is one of the most neurodiverse sports. And this is, I have no scientific survey. This is simply people I've talked to. In, and I've talked about a thousand people who have done these. And you'd be amazed because the high you get from a 5K, imagine that high multiplied by three times over the course of a day. Mm. Right? Or, you know, I, the other joke, of course, that I always say is why, sh- why should I suck at one sport when I suck at three? But, you know, the, 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 the concept of being ADHD and doing extreme sports like this, doing Ironman, doing triathlons, my skirts, my shirt says uh, jumps from perfectly good airplanes. I'm a licensed skydiver. I have over 500 skydives um, because I did one and most people would do it and check it off their list. I'm like, oh my God, I feel amazing. Let's sign up for a course and do it. You know, a, a, a 15 jump course and $8,000 later, I own my own gear and I jump all over the world now. So it's, but it's those kind of things that, that, that if you use that power for good, you really can change the world. Hold on, everyone. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Curad Performance Series, the official medical supplier of Ironman. Curad's far infrared kinesiology tape encourages faster recovery and enhanced performance. Don't let the aches and pains of everyday training and racing slow you down. Make sure you check out all the Curad products at Amazon.com, at Walmart, and Ironman.com. And let Curad help you find your finish line. Are, are people like yourself, and I've skydived and done some things in my life that my wife said, what the hell did you do that for? <laughs> so uh, ADHD, do people like yourself live on the edge? Maybe too far on the edge? Or is it just living to where... I've got to try this now. I've got to, do you always have to have another spot on the mountain you're looking at to go to? It's an excellent question. I look at it this way. If I thought that every time I jumped out of an airplane, I was going to die, I wouldn't do it. (laughs) I trust my training. I trust my gear. And I trust the statistics. When it was funny, when my daughter was born, my wife at the time, um, she said, I'd never tell you to stop skydiving because I know how much you love it. And I go, good. I go, because if you did tell me to stop skydiving and the next day I was crossing 42nd Street and got hit by a bus and killed, I would come back and haunt the crap out of you for that. <laughs> so, you know, for me, it's the premise that I know what makes me a better person. I know what makes me a better dad. I know what makes me a better friend. I know what makes me a better boyfriend. I know what makes me a better keynote speaker, interviewee, whether that's skydiving out of a plane or biking 100 miles a day or whatever it is. I do those things because the risk reward is beneficial in my favor, right? I I don't need to base jump. Base jumping has a much higher fatality rate. I don't need, I can get the same dopamine from skydiving, which is inherently safer than base jumping. I don't need to base jump. Maybe one day I'll try it, but I don't need to do it right now. I focus on the things that I know benefit me and I know help me and allow me to get through what I'm working on. Yeah, I just had a thought about, Iron Man finishers, because you made this statement, you know, they, so many are in the same boat as you and, and they look for that next race. Uh, I, too bad I didn't know. They, I got I to say, hey, here he comes, ADHD and an Iron Man finisher. You know? I always said that, that if Iron Man was smart, because they have, they have some good recapture tools to get people to sign up immediately, yeah. but if they were smart, they would hand you your medal and they just have a little computer, a little checkbox that says, if you do this again, if you commit to doing this again now, we'll charge your card. We'll save you 10%. We are so high when we cross that finish line, they would get every single person would do it immediately. They'd make a fortune. They'd sell out the race the day of. It's crazy. I know. Peter, I want to read uh, because I just adored the boy with the faster brain. Oh, thank you. I've gone through it three or four times. But there's something that uh, you wrote because it's about you. The teacher that had asked the class a question having to do with history. Peter knew the right answer, but instead of giving it to his teacher, he raised his hand, and when he was called on, he made a joke. The entire class laughed, but Peter, even though he knew he did something wrong, felt like he just got struck by a bolt of lightning. The class laughing at his joke somehow gave him his energy. That dichotomy of you knowing you you did something wrong, but yet that bolt of energy was too strong to resist, that push and pull 
for a kid has to be tough. Not only that, but it kind of sounds familiar. Doesn't it sound like something an addict might say? Uh, yes. <laughs> There's a very fine line between neurodiversity and addiction. Um, there is a reason that triathlon has one of the highest levels of, of recovering addicts in the sport. Recovering, yeah. You know, I, I, I joke, and I've said this publicly, and it's a joke slash has some truth to it. I believe that on any given day, I am three bad decisions in a row away from being a junkie in the streets. Does that mean I have a problem with drugs or with alcohol? Absolutely not, I don't. But it doesn't take much when you're ADHD, when you're neurodiverse, to start down a path that gets quicker and quicker and quicker and winds up. To give you an example of that, my speaking contract anywhere in the world says, I'll fly in, I'll speak, you'll pay my flight, you'll pay, you'll, you'll pay me for speaking, I'll fly home. That's it, it's literally two, two paragraphs, except in Las Vegas. If you want me to keynote in Vegas, there's a rider attached to my contract that says, client agrees, speaker does not have to be on the ground from wheels down to wheels up for more than eight hours. And if that means they want me for a 9 a.m. keynote in Vegas, they have to fly me into L.A. the night before and then put me on a 6 a.m. flight the morning of into Vegas where I'll speak and then fly home. Does that mean that – do I do that because I'm, I'm guaranteed to go and blow my daughter's college fund on blackjack? Absolutely not. But why give myself the opportunity. Wow. Why allow myself that risk? It's, it's the same reason that I'll book, you know, non-refundable workouts or, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, why give yourself the chance? You, you, you I believe I've had a, a number of friends who are recovering or in recovery who call it playing the tape forward. How are you going to feel in 12 hours if you do this thing versus how are you going to feel in 12 hours if you do that thing? And it's very close. Addiction and, and, and neurodiversity are very, very interlaced. Very. That, that's it. I mean, it's like a, a addicted gambler walking through a casino to get to his car or an alcoholic having to go to the bar to have a meeting. I mean, it, it, it's, gosh, that's so close. Speaking of, what, what are the, uh, the meds like, the medications prescribed and things like that for kids? Is that prevalent? Is it, does it help? Is it out there? So I have you pres- need it? I have a prescription for something called Concerta, which is an ADHD. It's a, it's a long-release, an extended-release ADHD drug. Um, essentially, it's an amphetamine. And it's an amphetamine that's designed to give you much, ironically enough, much like cocaine. It's designed to, to boost your dopamine, boost your serotonin, boost your adrenaline so you can focus. Obviously, unlike cocaine, it's very regulated, you know, you're not just taking whatever, you know, it, it, but it's, it's interesting. I have a prescription that's supposed to be a daily prescription. I think the last one I took was about five or six weeks ago. Um, I prefer to get my dopamine and and the things I need to focus through natural ways, through exercise, but I have the prescription because every once in a while, my assistant Megan will text me and say, idiot, you have five clients who you haven't sent your expense reports to yet. If you don't get them to me to send to them, they're not going to pay you. Take your damn pill. And she's 100% right. She knows there are certain things I hate doing that no amount of exercise will get me to do them. And, and again, it's about knowing thyself, right? I know what works for me. I know that when I'm going to give a keynote, I don't need a pill. I will do an hour on the treadmill and I'll be so hyped up from getting on stage. I'm fine. You're good. But yeah, you put me into, I had to sit through a five-hour meeting once at the Pentagon there was not enough ADHD medication in the world to get me through that. It was brutal. But, you know, so, so again, it comes down to knowing yourself. I don't take the pill every day. I think, like I said, I think I've, I think I've, uh, last time I, I, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to renew the prescription every month. I the last time I had a, I used the prescription was like a year and a half ago. I've just, I've kept this, these 30 pills. I rarely take them. But again, and, and I should mention, I'm not anti-med. I don't believe that, um, medication is inherently bad. But I also don't believe that every five-year-old who shows signs of distraction needs to be put on medication. I believe that we are over-medicating a lot of the kids out there. We're over-medicating the five-year-olds because they're acting like they're five. That doesn't necessarily need to happen, right? There are alternatives. Again, I'm not a doctor. There are alternatives, though. And I think that those alternatives – pills don't teach skills. You put a five-year-old on meds, yeah, it's going to help him with his ADHD and he'll be able to get through school or whatever – but now he's out of school and he's off his parents' insurance. Now he can't afford the medication. What has he learned that's going to help him in the real world? Absolutely nothing. 
So there needs to be a combination of both those things. If you, you can't put a kid on medication without appropriate therapy to help him understand and help him build good habits or her to build good habits to begin with. So Peter, what does, what does your daughter know? Or I don't want to say, you know, she loves her dad and I see you guys are very close. Uh, how open are you with ADHD with her? She knows it 100% honestly. She knows everything about why I work out. I'll give you an example. Kids are so damn smart at kills. I was never the smartest. Her. When she was four years old, back in 2017, I woke up one morning and I didn't exercise. I just didn't feel like it. And, you know, every once in a while, I have those moments where I don't do it. Right. I go inside. I make a cup of coffee. She gets up like an hour later. I'm sitting there with my coffee. I'm on the computer, whatever. She goes, that a half an hour, we're talking. What do you want to do today? There's like a Saturday. She's like, Daddy. Did you ride your bike this morning? Like, did I get on my Peloton? I said, no, honey, daddy was tired. He's, he, you know, he didn't get to bed last night. He didn't sleep that great last night. Because I knew you didn't. You're not as happy. Wow. She picked up on that at four? Four. At four. And that blew my mind. <laughs> but so she, she understands that, that daddy's brain sometimes doesn't make enough stuff that other people's brains make automatically, and I need to do stuff to get that stuff. Sometimes that's exercising. Sometimes that's talking to what I call my feelings doctor, which is my therapist, right? She And she understands that, and there's no – I don't lie about it. I don't try to hide it. There's no um, uh, uh, embarrassment about it. Brains are different. All of our brains are different. I am pretty sure – again, I'm not a doctor, but I'm pretty sure my daughter has ADHD. Uh, I've just seen the way she does stuff and it's very similar to how I did it as a kid. Even my dad's noticed it, you know, he's like, yeah, you, you do that exact same way. Um, and if it mm. comes a point where it impacts her negatively, yeah, I'll get her into therapy and we'll talk about it. But at this point it hasn't, but I just want her to understand that, that it isn't, it is in no way anything to be ashamed of. There's, I wear like 90% of my shirts say things like they're either skydiving shirts, Iron Man uh, shirts, or they say things like. ADHD um, is my superpower or whatever it is, you know? I've seen, yeah, I've seen that one on you. That's yep. cool. <laughs> I've seen that. So I, ADHD, ADD, what the heck? What I was reading, I think you wrote about it, EFD, executive functional? Executive function disorder. Well, what is that? Executive function disorder could be something as simple as a CEO who can make billion-dollar decisions before breakfast but can't find his memo pad or can't remember that he had a lunch or can't do whatever. It's the core frontal blow over the brain basically not processing as fast as everything else. Mm. It, in a normal person, it would process to, normally. In someone who's super fast like that and can make all these decisions, CEOs, whatever, the basic stuff tends to fly away. Um, I've done the same thing. I cannot tell you how many times I've been walking to a meeting and five minutes before I walk into the room or two minutes before I walk in, Megan, my assistant, Megan, who, who am I meeting with? She's like, you're supposed to be, I'm like, no, I'm at the place. I just don't remember the guy's name. You know, or wait, what are we talking about? Why are we meeting together? Yeah. If you notice on any, when, on my calendar app where you can, where you can sign up for a meeting with me, it literally says, what are we to, going to talk about? So just in case I forget, there it is waiting for me. But yeah, it's, it's, it's all about understanding that, that the brain acts differently for different people and being able to create better solutions, um, whether they're tech-based. I mean, God, AI has been a godsend for me. My, my lights, my shades, everything is controlled either by timers or by my voice. Mm -hmm. My lights start coming on at 3.50 in the morning, slowly in my room, about a 25-minute rise to sunrise. So 99% of the time, my alarm doesn't even have to go off because the sunrise has woken me up out of a light REM versus an alarm that doesn't care about REM and might wake you up at a deep REM, and that's where it's like impossible to wake up. So for me, it's about figuring out the tricks and hacks that work for me and get me through my day to day. Um, and it, it, they've worked. Most of them have worked. Some Is have that not. sometimes Peter exhausting? Very much so. But the alternative is <laughs> being very, very far from the kind of person I know I can be. And it's interesting. I don't see it as exhausting, I guess, because I just, I don't know any other way. It's your way. When I, when I, when I realize, when I realize that changes need to be made and I started, you know, my daughter goes to bed at eight o'clock and I'm usually out by eight 30 every night because I'm up so early. And I mean, 
you remember, I, I made the video, I'm training for an Ironman, yeah. right? Where the guy goes, the guy says, you know, I, I have to go to sleep. It's 6 p.m. Why do you have to go to sleep? I get up at 4 a.m. What's wrong with you? You know, I, I, that was like literally based on a conversation I had with my ex-girlfriend. Um, but when I made those decisions and I said, like, I'm going to go to sleep early. I'm going to do this every day. I was, my biggest fear was, God, I'm going to miss out on meeting all the people at the networking parties, the events I'm gonna meet, who can fulfill my career and fast forward. You know how many times that happened where I actually missed out on these things? Absolutely none. But you know what did wind up happening? When I got online, when I got to the door of the gym at 5.30 in the morning waiting for it to open, you know who was there? Other CEOs just like me. Yeah. Who realized that that's when the magic happens. I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm, not that person, I'm not that person who says, oh, you have to wake up. If you're a night owl, go be a night owl. But yeah. stick to what works for you. I find it, I, I don't know why, I find it humorous. And hopefully you do too when you, you know, the up at four and to bed at six or seven. And then the next statement was, uh, my ex-girlfriend, and I'm going, okay, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, <laughs> I'm dating someone right now who's very understanding. Fortunately, she's a morning person too. She's not really up with the whole, she's not really down with the whole 7 p.m., 8 p.m. thing. So you ch make changes, right? We went out, we went to see a concert Wednesday night. Mm. And yeah, I get to bed at 11 o'clock at night and I was exhausted. But when I woke up at 5 a.m. to go to the gym, I let myself sleep in an hour. I woke up at 5 a.m. I was tired, but I did it because, again, the alternative is not being that great. Being and, that, yeah. and I'm not, I, I want to make it clear. I'm not sitting here saying I'm awesome and I never miss a day. Bullshit. I miss a lot of days. But the key is to get back on the horse the next day because for someone like me, missing one day, I can get back on my horse. Miss two days, miss three days. Next thing I know, it's four weeks later. I've gained 30 pounds and I hate everyone. Peter, in your speeches, uh, keynotes and things like that, do you ever touch on the subject of the houseless population out there and and the misdiagnosis probably of a lot of them, uh, no matter what uh, uh, path of life they're from, what their background is? Do you, you ever touch on that? Absolutely. There have been studies that have set up to possibly up to 60 to 65 percent of the incarcerated population in this country is neurodiverse and has never been diagnosed. Um, mm -hmm. There was a very interesting show that came out on the Science Channel about 15 years ago. And I, I wish to this day, I had it on my TiVo, but when I, when I tossed my TiVo, I lost it. It was this, it was talking about risk takers. And they interviewed this doctor who talked about the premise of type T. So you have type A personalities, type B personalities, type right. A are, are crazy, type B are chill. Type T are the ones who go searching for these things like skydiving, like Iron Man, like whatever. But those fall into two categories. There's type T positive and type T negative in his, in his study. Type T positives are the ones like us who do the things like skydiving, like marathon running, like triathlons, whatever. Type T negatives are the ones who veer towards negative behavior, stealing, drugs, um, uh, crime, whatever. And they share the same brain chemistry, but how they handle it is where it deviates. And it was a fascinating study because – it does bring in the concept of, of you know, nature versus nurture. Um, I grew up with two parents who were very adverse. They were not. They were very risk adverse. They were teachers. Um, my father tells a story about we were hiking in Maine one summer, him and I, and we came across a, a fire lookout station, you know, those tall. Right, right. And the guy who was working there said, oh, come on up. No problem. Come visit. Say hi. And my dad's like, no, 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 no. And he looks around. I'm halfway up the ladder. Right? And he's like, God damn, he's like, come down from there. <laughs> I went all the way up and I hung out with the guy. But, you know, so, so for some reason it, 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 it hit me differently than it hit my parents. But I grew up in a, in a very supportive family and a family that, even though they didn't understand me, nurtured me and allowed me to mm. sort of, I mean, my, my Jewish mother was not happy about my skydiving. Jesus, she didn't talk to me for about a month. But in the end, she came around because what other choices did she have? It was never a – so in other words, I never went down the T-negative path. Mm. I was, she, they never understood why. Why would you do a marathon? Why would you do a triathlon? But, but they cheered and they were there for me. And that, that was the most important thing because that kept me on that good path. Well, Peter, my last question on find your finish line is called tri-table racing. It comes out of I've got friends that race the Baja 1000 in their trophy trucks. And I've done the 1,000 miles and – in a passenger seat on those trucks, and it's just amazing. But afterwards, they get together, they sit around the table, they call it table racing. So I changed it to tri-table racing. Reminisce with us 
uh, a race, an event you did, something that happened during the event that comes to mind. So try table race with us. Cozumel 2010, my first Ironman. Mm. Um, I was waiting. First of all, I, met, I made my best friend. I met my best friend to this day um, during the run por- course, my friend David Rower. He was mm-hmm. doing his tra- his Ironman. I was doing mine. We bonded. We friends to this day. But I will never forget this moment. I was running my, my company, Help a Reporter Out, at the time, and I had a huge following on Twitter and on all the socials and my email list. And so I posted I was doing this Ironman, and I get a care package in the mail from Sp- Jelly Belly, the company that makes sport beans. Oh, yeah. They sent me a giant bag of sport beans and they sent me a sport beans jersey, a triathlon, a racing jersey, triathlon jersey with yeah. jelly beans all over it. And I'm like, that's it. I'm wearing this for the Ironman. Awesome. It's 5.30, something in the morning. And I'm at the start line of the Ironman Cozumel. I'm at the, I'm sitting by the water just watching these dolphins and watching the sun come up and basically just praying that I don't die. I've never done one before. And I'm sitting there going, my God, what have you got? You're an idiot. What are you doing? And this German athlete who weighs about a tenth of me is sitting there and he looks over and he sees my shirt and he goes, ah, I see you too, a sponsored athlete. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. They they sent me a shirt. Um, Yeah. Mind you, Mike, his shirt says Savello. Okay. <laughs> Arguably one of the fastest triathlon bikes in the world and minus sport beans. He's like, ah, I sponsored out there. I'm like, yeah, they, they sent me the shirt. Like, you know, go. And he's like, <laughs> he comes over, he keeps talking to me. He's like, so, so he says, uh, uh, what, what triathlon is this? Oh, it's my first. Ah, you must be Wanderkind. Are you, are you hoping to place? Are you hoping to place? He asks me. I look at the guy, and I swear to God, I just lost it. I go, and I'll never forget this. this is the greatest moment. I go, sir, I, I, I'm looking at your jersey, and you're clearly sponsored by Cervelo, one, one of the fastest triathlon bikes in the world. Sir, if you look at my jersey, pardon my French, you'll notice I'm sponsored by fucking candy. <laughs> no, I'm not hoping to place. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> and he says to me, he goes, oh, what is your time goal? I go, the same day. I just don't want to die. Go away. It was, it was the funniest moment ever. And I just remember like, how could he possibly be serious? Look at us, you know, but yeah, 15, 45, 41. I will hold that time dear for the rest of my life. It was, it was the most amazing cross that finish line to this day. was the most amazing moment. I remember the music they were playing. I remember the announcer. It wasn't you, but I remember the announcer and it was just, yeah, it was everything. Well, Peter Shankman, you are an Iron Man. Indeed. There you Thank go. You. So Peter, how can... How can people find you and connect with you and bring you out to speak or just to get your advice? How can they do I'd that? I love it. I'd love it. I, I answer all my own emails. My email is peter at shankman.com. Just my first name at my last name.com. I'm at Peter Shankman on all the socials. I, the only thing I don't really use anymore is Twitter, um, but I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on uh, uh, Blue Sky. I'm, I'm everywhere. Just Google my name. I, I'm very easy to find. Um, and yeah, I always, I'm always happy to chat. Well, Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, you know, the knowledge that you have and it's all about messaging and, and, and your messaging getting out. So keep at it because I truly believe a lot of parents and kids are going to love reading this book and then find out a little more about themselves. So Peter Shankman, thank you for being on the podcast. I'm honored. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Mike. You got it. And keep in mind, Pillar Performance, Triple Magnesium Powder, Sleeping better than ever. You got to try it. Great for recovery to use before and after the event, not during. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe to it. Let us know how you feel. Give us your opinions of it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or MikeRiley.net. So keep in mind, everybody, for the most part, you're the cause of your own experiences. If you keep those experiences positive, you will find your finish line. Aloha, everyone.